job. Thank you, Brian. Good job. And it's a good song, too. Let's open our Bibles, if you would, to Revelation chapter 21. And we are going to continue our study in this 21st chapter. And you need to get ready to read right quick because we're going to go right to our text tonight. And uh, I've marked it down here for you to read that we would read down to, through verse number 8. But I'm not going to read that far. We'll just read down to verse number 5. And uh, mainly the topic tonight will be in verse number 3. We'll catch up a little bit from last week, but then I'm going to talk to you about verse number 3. But verse number 1 says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new, And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Heaven's a great subject, isn't it? I know there are a lot of people, as I said last week, could probably wish that we do a whole lot more preaching about heaven. And many people want to know what heaven is like. And there are many imaginative ideas that people have concerning heaven. Heaven is spoken of many times in the Bible. It's an often repeated subject. And that's because God wants us to live in expectation of heaven. He wants us to live in expectation that Christ will return and take us home to be in heaven with him. But also in this expectation that were we to die before Christ comes, that we know that we would awake in this wonderful place that God has promised for us called heaven. So God wants us to think about the wonderful rewards that he will give us for our faithful service to him. Uh, Heaven is given in Scripture as an incentive for us to live in holiness and to diligently pursue the work that God has given us to do. The apostles, especially the apostle Paul, used heaven as great encouragement to people that were living in the midst of persecution. When he wrote the Philippian letter, he was really more burdened for the people that he wrote to than he was for his own predicament. Paul was in prison, but he was more worried about the despondency of the people that he was writing to. Uh, they were crestfallen because of the, the types of things that Paul was going through and the fact that he was in prison. And they were thinking that if this could happen to the great apostle, then what will happen to us? And Philippians is a great letter because Paul believed in the sovereignty of God. He believed that God has a purpose in everything that he does and for everything that happens in our lives. And so he wrote to the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 12, and said, But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happen unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. Paul had opportunities to reach people in Rome that he otherwise would not have been able to reach if he hadn't been in prison. He was able to give the gospel to Caesar's own household. 
because of the servants that he interacted with there and worked with, and he was able to give them the gospel. And there wasn't any possibility that Paul could do like we would want to do, and that's go to people's doors and knock on them and ask them if they know that they're going to heaven. Paul had no opportunity to go to Caesar's house and knock on his door and say, you know, I'd like to talk to you about your soul. Like to know if you know where you're going to die, where, when you die, where are you going to go? Paul didn't have that kind of opportunity, so he had to go through the back door, so to speak, and that was to get into Caesar's household by being in prison and witnessing to the people that were guarding him there and serving him in that prison. So Paul used that, and you might think, well, what does all that have to do with heaven? Well, Paul used that to encourage the people to live within God's plan, to live for Christ. Don't be like those who are enemies of the cross. And so he wrote in Philippians chapter 3, Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk, so ye have us for an example. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. Then he says, For our conversation, our life, our citizenship is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul was giving these people encouragement to look for heaven, and he wanted to give them confidence in heaven. Rather than putting their affections in this life and all the things that are going to be destroyed here, he said, set your heart on heaven and think about that. Think of what God's going to give you in heaven. So everything in the earth is going to be destroyed. And John points this out in Revelation 21, verse 1. He says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And we discuss that as the remake of creation. Everything in the world, everything that's here, all that we see around us will be destroyed by God As the Word of God says, he causes the elements to melt with fervent heat, and the earth also and all the works that are therein shall be burned up. So we think about heaven, and we long for heaven. But I need to remind you that God does not want us to think of heaven as an escape valve. He doesn't want us to think of heaven as a way to get out of this life. Because what he's done is to make us citizens of heaven already while we're here. And he wants us to live and enjoy life, enjoy serving him, be joyful while we wait for heaven. So we are to live in peace and contentment. We're to work for Christ now. And I know it's very easy for us to be despondent about health, despondent about finances and family issues, but the Bible tells us not to be anxious about any of those things, but to rejoice because the Word of God says the Father in heaven is going to take care of us. He has a home prepared for us in heaven. What we do sometimes is take Revelation 22, verse 20, out of its context, and in our worst moments, we say, Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And so we're not looking for the return of Christ because we want to see him but we're looking for it because we just want to get out of all the troubles that we have in this world. And God doesn't want us to live that way. Now, despite those misunderstandings, there is a great interest in heaven, and really there should be. For every Christian, there ought to be an interest in heaven. Now, verse number 2, John goes on to talk about the radiant capital of heaven. 
That's the new Jerusalem. And in verse 2, John saw that city descending from heaven. And there's more explanation about what it's like in the latter part of the chapter. But the information that we're given here in verse number 2, that this is a home of a particular people, that it belongs to the bride of Christ. And the bride is the church. The bride is the lamb's wife. And that is distinct from believers that are in other ages. The bride is not people that are in the Old Testament. It's not people that were saved during the tribulation or will be saved during the tribulation. The bride is one particular people, and that is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that ought to tell you that it's a great privilege to be a part of the Lord's church because this is the city that belongs to God's church. Now, it's not a, it's not a guarded city, and the church uh, shouldn't expect uh, everyone else will respect their property rights in heaven. I mean, every person in every age as a believer is welcome to come in and out of the city of the New Jerusalem because the Bible tells us that the gates are never shut there. And one of the reasons it tells us that is because people can go in and out. The redeemed of God from all ages can enter into this city. But it is the possession of the bride. It does belong to the church. God or Christ gives it to her. And folks, that is one of the reasons why you ought to consider it a great privilege to be a member of the Lord's church. That's really the highest honor that anybody can be given. And I know that there are many Christians that don't think of the church in that way because you have people that don't speak well of their church and they don't care about attending church to hear the word of God and and they uh, complain and and they're agitators over things that go on in church. And no one should be like that because, again, being a member of the church is the highest honor that we can attain in this life. And I like the advice that many, many writers have given. They said, they said you need to love people in your church because you're going to have to live with them forever. So you need to start loving them now. Well, we want to go on to verse number 3. And, and really, this could be this could be the grandest statement that's made in all of the book of Revelation and could be even the grandest statement that's made in all of the Bible. John says, And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Now, thirdly, In our lesson tonight, we want to talk about the residing companion. Now, the first thought that came to my mind as I read this verse, or when I read the verse, is Jesus' words that he said in Matthew 5, verse number 8. He said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Do you realize how stunning that that verse is? The pure in heart. And that is speaking of those that have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, those that have been cleansed in the blood of the Lamb. Jesus Christ washed them in his own blood. And the benefit of that cleansing is the second part of the verse, they shall see God. Now, the Scripture says that no one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God in his glory. No one has ever seen God because he is a spirit. Christ, of course, is the visible manifestation of the Father. He was God in human flesh, and people could see God in that way because Jesus appeared in the flesh. 
In the Old Testament, we have Theophanies or Christophanies, and those are pre-manifestations of Christ, but in those he appeared to people in a human form. And so no one has actually ever seen God, God the Father, in his glory. Now, at the burning bush, Moses was able to talk with God, but that bush was a symbol of God's presence. Moses didn't actually see God. And you remember on Mount Sinai that God spoke with Moses, and uh, God uh, appeared there, but Moses was not able to see him. Instead, he hit hit him in the cleft of the rock, and then God's glory passed by, and Moses was not able to see the face of God. Because the word of God says to see God means that you would die. But this is another wonderful benefit that we have of heaven and eternal life. There is no death in heaven. And so seeing God does not mean that we're going to die. We're going to be given a body and an ability to see God that we don't have. And the Bible says that God will live with us. He will gather us to him. We'll be in the loving embrace of the Father in a way that can never be known in this flesh in which we live. So I want you to see, first of all, that heaven is a prepared place of fellowship with God. Heaven is the only place where we're actually fit to come in contact with God. You see, God doesn't allow intimate contact with him now. He doesn't allow that while we're in the sinful body. Even though we have been given a new nature, we've been given a nature of God, uh, we have been regenerated and the Holy Spirit lives within us, yet we are not allowed to see God. We have that presence of God with us. We know that he's here, but we're not allowed to see him. And we can talk to him in prayer, and we can come to him as Christ intercedes for us. The Bible even says that we can come boldly to the throne of grace because our great high priest, Jesus Christ, is our intercessor, but it does not say that we can see God. We can't see him. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, it says, But as it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. And that means that in our wildest imagination, we could never understand heaven, we can't understand God, we can never see God while we're in this body. And then the next verse, Paul said, But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. And so we know these things are true. We know that all of it's true. We know that heaven exists, and we know that God is here, and we know that he loves us and he cares for us. We know the Holy Spirit is living inside of us, but we can't see him. And so the place where our faith ends in sight, where we actually can see God, is when we get to heaven. Now, there's no way that I can explain that. Uh, maybe by words of Scripture is the best that I can get. First Corinthians or First Timothy, rather, verse six: Who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light, which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. And so heaven is the place where we come in contact with God in a way that we have never experienced Him before. No mortal has ever seen him or had contact with him like this. And the word of God says when we get to heaven, we'll have fellowship with him. Now let's take just a moment to examine the statement in uh, verse number three. I, I don't know who this voice is that speaks from heaven. I don't know who it belongs to. I believe that it's probably one of the angels since angels have been used to make many announcements in the book of Revelation. Perhaps this is Michael. It says this, 
Or maybe it's Gabriel. Gabriel made a world-changing announcement when he said in Matthew one twenty-one, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And that was a game-changer. That was a life-changer. And I don't know, maybe Gabriel is the one who says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. So this is the second thing I want you to see, is that personal presence of the Father, his own personal presence. John says, And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And that word tabernacle is the same one that the Apostle John used in the Gospel of John. Verse number 14 in John 1 says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so when you see the word tabernacle in Revelation 21.3, and when you see the word dwell with them in that same verse, and when you see in John 1.14 that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, those words all come from the same root that we get tabernacle. And what it actually means is that God has pitched his tent among us, that God has come to live with us. Now, that's an allusion from the Old Testament and the tabernacle that Moses was told to construct in the wilderness. A tabernacle is a tent. It's a a place where God visually displayed his presence. And this is something that he had never done before with his people. He had never visually displayed his presence in this way before. But you can be sure of this, that the presence of God getting too close to the presence of God, caused great fear among the people. Getting too close to the presence of God. God showed himself in a cloud that rested over the Holy of Holies. That's what happened during the daytime. A great cloud when the tabernacle was in its place and everybody was where they were supposed to be. Then the cloud descended and stood right over the Holy of Holies because God was dwelling there in the tabernacle in what's called the Shekinah glory, a bright and shining light. At night, there was a pillar of fire that lit up the sky that showed God's presence was there. Can you imagine for a moment what it must have been like for the enemies of God, the enemies of God's people to look over the hillsides and be staring down on that camp, perhaps spying on them, and to see that fire burning over the tabernacle, reaching right up into heaven, And to know that the God of Israel was there. Jehovah God was in the camp. That's what the cloud and what the fire symbolize. And that presence was a fearsome sight. And so no one got too close to it. See, the tabernacle was shut up. Nobody could go in there but the priest. And the priest went in, as we read it this morning in the book of Hebrews chapter 9. The priest went into the first part of the tabernacle and carried about his duties there. And that was a daily activity. But he went into the holy place, the holy of holies, where that glory of God rested. He did that one time a year. And he went in there with a sacrifice. He went in there with the blood of the sacrifice and made atonement for his sins, first of all, and then went back in and made atonement for the sins of the people. And the rest of the time, that place was off limits. Nobody could come into the presence of God. Even seeing and touching the articles that were in that tabernacle was forbidden for anybody but priests. 
And so there were three families of Levi that transported the furnishings of the tabernacle, but all of them had to be covered up before they were moved so no one could see them. In Numbers 4.15 it says, And when Aaron and his sons have made an end of covering the sanctuary and all the vessels of the sanctuary, as the camp is to set forward, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to bear it, but they shall not touch any holy thing lest they die. These things are the burden of the sons of Kohath in the tabernacle of the congregation. Now, Kohath is one of the, one of the families out of the tribe of Levi. Verse number 20 says, But they shall not go in to see when the holy things are covered, lest they die. And so there was always that sense of fear of getting too close to the presence of God. And I know you remember the story of Uzzah, how that... He tried to reach out and steady the Ark of the Covenant. They were transporting it on a cart. And he thought that, uh, I guess it shifted, the load shifted or hit a bump. And he reached out to steady the Ark because he thought that it was going to fall and God struck him dead just like that. They were not permitted to touch it. They could not come into the presence of God in that way. Then in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah was given a vision of God sitting on the throne And his response was not to walk up to the throne and shake God's hand. Instead, he was aghast when he saw God on the throne, and he said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And he said that because there's no way that I can see such a thing and live. God's going to strike me dead right now. Calvin writes, The prophet now relates how powerfully he was affected by that vision, namely that he was so terrified by seeing God that he expected immediate destruction. Job's reaction of getting too close to God was similar. He said in Job 42, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now Job didn't actually mean that he looked in the face of God. He just meant I am too close. I'm too close to the presence of God. I'm nothing but a man. I repent in dust and ashes. Then you remember Peter, when he saw what Jesus could do in causing the disciples to catch so many fish that their nets were broken and it was hard to haul all of those fish in. They'd been fishing all night and hadn't caught anything and Jesus told them exactly where to go. And that's when Peter recognized that he was in the, pre- in the presence of the creator God. And he said to Jesus, depart from me, For I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now you see, nobody wants to get too close to God. It is a fearful thing, Hebrews says, to fall into the hands of a living God. It is fearful. Unless you find yourself in Revelation 21, verse 3. And then you can come face to face with God. Then you can see God and you can live. Now don't ask me to explain what seeing God is like. I don't have any idea. No one has ever seen him. If they did see him, they never lived to tell about it. Now, going back to that word tabernacle, John used that to describe Jesus as he lived in the world. And he dwelt right with the apostles. They were able to see him. They were able to touch him. They conversed with him. And, of course, they saw the compassion that Jesus had when he actually reached out and touched people and healed them. They had that personal contact with him. Now, that same word, tabernacle, again, is used there in verse number 3. The same thing as God dwelling with us. And God will dwell as intimately with us when we get to heaven 
as he did in the presence of Jesus Christ when he was on this earth in the flesh. People fellowshiped with Christ. But I want to explain something to you about that. God is not so familiar, and he never will be so familiar, that you can refer to him in ways like the man upstairs. Job said, For he is not a man as I am, that I should answer him, and we should come together in judgment. Now, in heaven, we will have close contact with God. We won't fear his presence then. We won't be kept from touching the vessels of his sanctuary. But I don't agree with people who make comments like this, that they think that we're going to be familiar with God in such a way. Even some have said, well, we'll go up and we'll sit on our daddy's lap. We'll go up to the throne and sit on the lap of God. Jesus did say this in Revelation 3.21, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and sat down with my Father in his throne. That's not referring to coming up and sitting on the lap of Jesus. It just means that we have the right to come into the place where that throne is. So that's not snuggling up with him. It's not sitting on Jesus' lap or sitting on the Father's lap. He's still the Father. And he still commands respect. And no matter how long that we're in heaven, we're not going to be God. We're still going to be in awe and wonder and amazement of God because of who he is and what he's done for us. One writer said, Do you think that we'll be able to embrace in our glorified form the full infinity of God? No, because if we could, we would be equal to God. And even in our glorified state, we won't be. So we perhaps will not see all of his immense infinity, but all that our perfect eyes can perceive in perfect holiness, we will see. And what we will see is his being revealed in blazing light. Do you think that I'm going to be content with that? Am I going to be content to be in the presence of God in that way, just to see his glory in a blazing light and and to have fellowship in that way? Am I going to be disappointed because that's the way that I have fellowship with God? You know, someone has said that the amazement of heaven is not, I wonder why he is not here, and I wonder why he is here. The amazement of heaven will be, I wonder, why am I here? Why in the world am I here? Why in heaven am I here? So what a thought that is. We shall see God. You know, I can imagine Christ as a man. I can't imagine God as a spirit. I can't imagine the glory of God. Of God. You know, there's something that I don't like. I don't like to see pictures. I don't like to see tracts that people pass out that have drawings of God in them. I don't care anything about the Sistine Chapel and Michelangelo's painting where supposedly God reaches out and the finger of God touches Adam, touches man. I don't care anything about that. I think it's blasphemy. We ought not to even think of God in that way. All all that I can say is right now, you need to maintain your distance from God. He's too high and he's too holy for us to frivolously imagine him. Now in this third part of the message, I want to explore the last phrase, and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And I want you to know that when we come into the presence of God, we will be his prized possession forever. And that's a fulfillment of a long-time promise that's been woven throughout both the Old and the New Testaments going all the way back to Genesis. This is a return of the communion that Adam had with God. Now, before Adam sinned, he waited for God to come to the garden. He waited for that presence of God to be there. Now, I'm not 
fully sure of how God manifested himself to Adam. I think most likely it was in a glorious light. I think it was probably the Shekinah glory. That's the way that God manifested himself to Adam. But God has promised that that kind of communion that he had with Adam will return. Now, let me just take you through some passages so that you can see God's full intention to bring us back into that close communion that Adam enjoyed. And these tell us that we will remain his people forever. So we can start with Abraham, and we go back to the promise in Genesis 17:7 that was given to him, and I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and thy seed after thee. To Moses he said in Leviticus 26:12, and I will walk among you and will be your God and ye shall be my people. And see if this statement in Ezekiel doesn't sound a great deal like the book of Revelation. Ezekiel says, or it's uh, God says through Ezekiel, chapter 37, Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. We talked about this morning, wasn't it? Peace with God. There is an everlasting peace with God that is coming. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them, and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle, that's the presence of God, the dwelling of God with them. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then through the prophet Zechariah, he says, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord. And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. And I will dwell in the midst of thee, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto thee. And then the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, and you might want to listen to this closely because at the beginning of the message I said Paul used heaven as encouragement for godly living. And he quotes from the Old Testament. That was the Bible for him because the New Testament hadn't completely been written. And so he quotes from the Old Testament in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 through 16, where he says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part of he that believeth with an infidel? Now, you can take those verses and plug them into this morning's message, why we don't mix and mingle with people that, are, that throw the Bible out of their services, out of their church, and disregard it. He says, you're not to have any communion with these infidels. You're not to have anything to do with darkness. And then he says, verse 16, And what agreement had the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. Then he quotes Old Testament, As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them and will be their God and they shall be my people. Now when you consider that, folks, what Paul is speaking of there, it ought to be almost scary to us. Because what he's talking about is that the Holy Spirit is living in us now. God is dwelling in us now. We are his temple. We are his tabernacle. We are now in the presence of the Holy Spirit. He's already claimed us. He's already made us his own. And so the question for every one of us here that claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ, are you sure that you want to keep doing what you're doing? Are you sure that you want to keep living the way that you're living When the Holy Spirit of God is within you, and if you don't understand how fearsome it is, how fearful it is to be in the presence of God, then you don't understand who God is. 
Who lives in you? God lives in you. And so you've got to be careful what you say, what you, how you talk, how you act, what you dress, everything else about you. Be careful because God lives in you. And these people in the Old Testament times, they thought about this, God dwelling with us. They knew that was a fearsome thing to have God among them. Be careful how you approach God. We're going to come into his visible presence forever, but be careful now how you approach him. Now, you see, the opening verses of chapter 21 are to get us prepared for what we're going to read about heaven. The groundwork is being laid here. And I think that there are too many people that think that they can just barge in on the presence of God. People think, I deserve an audience with God. I deserve to be able to do this. I think that these people that have these so-called gifts of the Spirit and the speaking in tongues and all those different kinds of things, I say you better be careful. Be careful what you ask for. Be careful when you come into the presence of God. You don't want to come to God unless you have an invitation. He's adopted you. You belong to him. You are a son of his, but you are not a son because you have an inherent right. You have a son because he's made, you are a son because he's made you so. I'm appalled when I hear people say things in their normal conversation. Oh, my God. Exclaiming, oh, God. Folks, it's going to be quite different when you say, oh, God, in the presence of God, when you see him face to face. W.A. Criswell wrote, How would a mortal describe the presence of God, and how could he enter into the glory of the great Jehovah? For no man can look on the face of God and live. Criswell was just marveling over this, coming face to face with God. So think about to whom you're referring when you say, Oh God, or Oh my God. Let me give you three more verses, and then we'll finish this part of the study. One of the things that I like to think about is how that God has chosen us as his special people and choosing Israel over any other nation that was emblematic of God's choice in salvation. So God says in Deuteronomy 7 verse 6, he said, For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are on the face of the earth. And those identical words are said twice more in the book of Deuteronomy. In the 26th chapter, in the 18th verse, it says, And the Lord hath avouched thee this day to be his peculiar people. Now listen to Peter's comment in the New Testament. He says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So if you're God's child, if you have believed in him, you are his prized possession, you are his peculiar people, you are a chosen generation, and someday God, someday you will see God face to face. And you'll talk with him, not as an invisible spirit, and not in the flesh of incarnation, but you'll be in his presence in all of his glorious splendor and hear him say, you are mine and I will live forever with you and I will be your God. Folks, behold, it's new. Nobody's ever done this before. Nobody's ever been permitted to do this before, seeing God. And if that doesn't make you want heaven, then you might as well stay home for the rest of the messages because it's not going to get any better than that. You will see God face to face. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. 
that we can come into your presence in prayer and that we do have our Lord Jesus Christ who has saved us from our sins and made it possible for us to talk with you. You've given us your word to speak to people. This is you speaking through us. We have that manifestation of God with us. And Lord, we just long for the day when we can see you face to face. Now, there will be some people who will stand before the throne in judgment, and it'll be so fearful to stand there because there won't be any loving kindness, there won't be any grace, there won't be any mercy. It's too late then. So we encourage people to receive Jesus Christ as Savior tonight because that is the only way that we'll ever see God face to face. Bless our people tonight, Lord. Thank you for your wonderful word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.